you cannot have 164 countries with different preferences at different levels of development and say we will sit down and discuss artificial intelligence, electronic commerce, public health, because now we discuss non-tariff barriers. We don't discuss tariffs anymore, where everybody can be part of a game. Now we discuss social preferences, which are endogenous. And <laughs> like-minded guys can, unlike-minded guys cannot. And you don't want the old gut reciprocity idea, give me public health, so I'll give you some... No, these things don't work. So unless the WTO, and that's the papers we've been doing, it's, this is the, if you wish, the culmination point with Bernard, we've done three, four papers before on this. Unless the WTO finds a way to have a bridge to the hot houses of regulatory innovation, free trade areas, what we advocate is transparency exposed, not exante only. I mean, the moment you have your free trade area, Mexico, Usmaca now, uh, everything you do there, I should know about it in the WTO and see how much of this I can multilateralize. Same thing for plurilaterals. Try to incite plurilaterals, which have an even more of an umbilical cord with the WTO. Why? Because dispute settlement is by definition WTO and plurilaterals. Unless they do these bridges to plurilaterals and free trade areas, it will, the WTO edifice will suffer. And then dispute settlement will suffer as well. That was Petros Mavroidis, professor at Columbia Law School and my first guest of this season of the Rodolfo Rivas Project. Although we recorded this late last year, it is now just being released. I hope his comments and observations are still valid in this rapidly changing world of international trade. However, our conversation delves into a variety of other topics, such as how Petros became a professor, how the WTO has evolved, his views on the WTO as an institution, and what are some of his thoughts on the future of the WTO. He also shares how he got into sports arbitration at CAS, and how he really enjoys this part of his work. At one point, he even mentions Giannis, his co-national and reigning NBA MVP. Before concluding, he tells us how he manages to fit all this work, as well as continuing to research and write on a variety of topics. Just a quick note. The views, thoughts, and opinions expressed here belong to the individuals sharing them and do not necessarily represent the views of their employers. If you like the show, please let us know by liking, subscribing, and or reviewing. You are in for a treat. Please listen in. Take it away. Hello, uh, and welcome to the Rodolfo Rivas Project. I'm really happy to be here in front of a good friend and mentor, uh, Petros Mavroidis. We've been meaning to do this for a long time, and I'm happy you're finally here. Hablamos en español o en inglés? English. English, okay. <laughs> so, how are you, Petros? I cannot complain. It's a pleasure to be here with you. Thank you very much. Uh, is this the most interesting times you've ever had in international trade? Uh, the most unusual, definitely. <laughs> I don't know if it's the most interesting. It's quite unusual. I think. I think that um, to me, the the if you wish, the tipping point is not the the U.S. reaction per se to dispute settlement. It's uh, 
that it sensitized people to rethink a little bit multilateralism and the value of multilateralism. But the dangers, the danger is five, ten years old, in my view. We'll discuss more later. Uh, before we get to all of that, uh, you always wanted to be a professor? No. Was that not? So no. how did you... Ah, it's a total accident of history, <laughs> honestly. I mean, if I want to be honest, I had no idea. When I, when I, when I, was, uh, when I was 18 years old, and I, not even 18, and I finished my high school, um, I was enrolled in two schools. I was studying uh, European integration, uh, essentially economics and political science, and a little bit of law in Brussels. And at the same time, I was uh, passing exams for a low degree in Greece, but without following classes very often. And then when I graduated, I wanted to do something which, because I thought the European Union was a, was a great idea. I mean, the integration process, if you look at what happened in Europe in the last, uh, well, that was the 80s. So uh, 40 years before, a couple of world wars, we messed up the world essentially in Europe. And I believe that this is one way, or probably the most appropriate way to turn the page. For the EU. Uh, yeah, I mean, if, if we do it in Europe, then maybe we'd find... Uh, people who emulate this example and this experience elsewhere as well. And I think that similarly uh, that's the result of what eventually became the WTO. Uh, well, you see, this is the thing. I mean, when I left, then I said, well, I have to do... I, I, I was not crazy. I mean, I was not crazy about studying law, but I get interested in regulation and law is the expression of the regulatory thinking. Also, then I went to Berkeley to study more law. And this is where I moved from the European to the international stage and I started thinking about world trade. Because essentially, if you think about the European Union, was the first agreement was I put coal and steel under one authority. So if energy becomes some sort of community responsibility, you reduce the potential for war, which brought me to Tom Schelling type of thinking. Uh, how uh, trade is and Cordell Hall and all the guys who worked for uh, the coming into um, the advent of the GATT, how trade can be a means to reach an end would be some sort of peaceful cohabitation across nations with divergent interests, of course. And that's where I started thinking. But then uh, I went to work for a law firm. Uh, had to pay back some debts, as you can imagine. <laughs> I mean, you went through the same process. Yeah. I didn't like working for a law firm very much, although I learned a lot and I'm most grateful and I will be grateful forever. Because I hated this traveling back and forth, and uh, the clients were all overseas. So, what, uh, what type of law? Well, it was anti dumping. Anti dumping, yeah. yeah. So, that, I went back that's to my. Exciting. <laughs> well, exciting in a way, because price discrimination, I mean, the way you learn about it in antitrust and economics, in IO, in microeconomics, is one thing. And then you see the reality in anti dumping, and you say, my God, everything I learned pricing above average variable cost is fine, is wrong. Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, in a way, it was exciting. I, I got into political economy, thanks to anti-dumping, what drives anti-dumping. Um, I went back to my professors. I had a couple I liked very much at Berkeley. And I said, look, I mean, this is not for me. I don't want to be a lawyer. I want to do something else. So one of them said, well, I mean, why don't you write a thesis? I said, yeah, but if I stay in the U.S. and I do thesis, who's paying for that? He says, don't worry, I have friends at Max Planck. In I spoke German. I have friends at Max Planck. You go and write it over there in Heidelberg. So I moved to Heidelberg. I wrote my thesis. I went to the job market after that. Uh, by that time, it was personal situation as well. I met my now wife. Uh, I decided I to stay in Europe. I spent some time at Michigan, but it was I, I had decided to stay in Europe. So uh, in Europe, 
I know you're half European and don't get this badly. I don't like the way we do law in Europe. Uh, well, it's not, I mean, I don't like this idea of doing law at the age of 18. I think, I think the U.S. got it right. You have to have some basic thinking in your mind before you go and do law. Uh, so I said, well, I, first of all, I have to understand better WTO law. And that's what I did. I came to work here for the GATT Legal Service. I worked with, uh, there were two uh, amazing lawyers who, when I was there, were heading the Legal Affairs Division, not the kind of people you see nowadays, unfortunately. First was Frieder Ressler, from a German lawyer, very smart guy, from who I learned a lot and I owe a lot. And then my, even nowadays, very dear friend, Bill Davy, who I <laughs> owe equally a lot. I mean, uh, somebody who knows GATT and WTO inside out and who also had the time to spend time with me and teach me. I owe this guy so much, I can never, I can never tell how much I owe Bill. Um, then I got back into the job market. I said, well, I'm, I, I mean, Bill knew and I knew I was not going to stay here forever. So eventually I said, look, you don't mind? He said, no, of course, he was a super decent guy. And uh, the problem was by that time I was married with my wife. So 96, I was thinking for universities in Europe. Uh, I started teaching in Switzerland, keeping in mind, I mean, well, eventually I will go somewhere else. Assuming my wife was mobile, <laughs> uh, I got an offer to go to Colombia. In the beginning, we couldn't move there because uh, it was, uh, they asked me to go there for full time. It was impossible for me. But then they gave me tenure. They tenured me, obliging me to teach all of my course in one semester. And that's where I am since 99, essentially. I but teach, now, like, yeah. you are fully divided between... I'm not divided. I'm, all of my teaching is essentially in, in, in the U.S. Here I teach little. I teach one course now at the Graduate Institute with Damian Nevin, Professor of Economics, who do a course on state-owned enterprises at the Graduate Institute. And I do one course on external relations of the European Union in Chatel, which is the school of my ancestors as well. So, I mean, if you wish, my teaching, 80% of my teaching is in the U.S. But time-wise, yes. Time-wise, I spent four months a year in New York because our daughter studies there as well. Yeah. So now have a, and my wife comes, spends a lot of time uh, because our, not because of me, because of our daughter. <laughs> For both. Yeah, well, a little bit more because of my daughter. Trust me about this. We've been together too long, so she's got used to me. She, she, and I understand. I mean, the priority is our kids. So uh, I do most of my teaching in the U.S. and a little bit in Europe. But I spend more time in Europe every year. Yeah, because yeah. of your family. Um, I'm interested, you said you were here during the GATT days. What were some of the differences you see from those days to now? I mean, now it's a bit more professional, more standardized, more... But what, what did we lose from those days? That we I think about? we didn't manage to replace the Bill Davies of this world, quite frankly. I, these guys are in short supply. Um, and uh, if you think about it in a more contextual manner... But shouldn't it be more... The institution should be strong? I, I, I want to come into... It's an excellent point, Rodolfo. And I want to come into this point. I was going to mention it last, but you're right. Maybe it should be first. It's precisely because the institution is weak that these guys matter a lot. I, I mean, look, look at all the, from start back in 1947, when the GATT is being negotiated. The institutional part was in the ITO, it was never negotiated seriously after that. When they did the WTO dispute settlement, the last thing they thought about discussing was panels in the appellate body. The appellate body is essentially four pages. The panels is le less than four pages. We didn't care very much about it. We thought it would be some sort of uh, the bicycle that will continue cycling forever because it worked so well in the past. 
And it, it kind of did until now. <laughs> exactly. But it worked so well in the past, I mean, because somehow we managed to get some super smart guys initially. Initially, you had the negotiators. Dana Wilgress from Canada did 20 panels. I mean, there were guys who knew the system. Then you had people like Frieder. Frieder was a very, is, he's around still, very smart lawyer. I mean, how many Frieder wrestlers you've met in your life? You had Bill Davey. Bill Davey was, in the US there was Jackson Hudick, Kenneth Dunn, Bill Davey. These were the top in the US, not in uh, uh, small, uh, I mean, uh, St. Kitts and Nevis. In, there was the four top lawyers. He had one of those four lawyers heading the legal affairs division. Well, these guys were not replaced. If you have a weak institution and you don't have somebody like those guys at this level of legal expertise, inevitably it will suffer. And quite frankly, one of the things that, to me, uh, the quality of reports has been going down the drain over the years. Uh, although, you see, it's one thing to complete the contract and add language and stuff, but you need to have also the guys who understand the completion of the contracts and know the background. And this is where I think uh, dispute settlement, uh, quite frankly. And what was the other point that you wanted to raise? Yeah, you see, the, then the other thing is look at who are now the guys who are called against this weak institution to judge the, the cases. And now compare the people who were judging cases before and now. Just open any gut cases. You'll see names of the top negotiators, not only in the 40s and the 50s. But even in the 70s, you have Mike Cartland, Stuart Harbin. You have people who at least knew what it was all about. And next to them, you had a very competent lawyer, somebody like Frieder or Bill Davey, to explain how it works. Nowadays, both those elements are missing. For political reasons, panelists are people you and I have never heard of, if we want to be intellectually honest. And uh, the people who, the, the discrepancy between private sector and GATT is so much that the bright, I look, I look at my kids at Columbia Law School, the best and the brightest go to law firms. Thank God some of them came here, thank God. And I'm very, very thankful that, I, I can give you names if you wish, but I don't think it's appropriate. Some of those kids ended up here at, in, in the WTO, but there are very few. Yeah, but uh, I mean, this is, this is something true. I, I mean, I was never during those days, but I, I can read the, the books and the articles and everything, and you see these towering like giants of economic law, economic policy, mm. and maybe we're not there right now. But uh, and you are saying about the panelists. There was this article that I'm sure you read like a couple of weeks ago from your friend Just uh, about the work being done by the secretariat and the panelists and the division. Yeah. Uh, so. I guess that what he argued there is that most of the bulk of the work is not done by the panelists. It's by the institution itself, the institution that mm -hmm. is already here. So is this still the same, uh, the same uh, you know, comment that you're... No, I mean, you know, th this is the thing. I mean, you see, uh, when I was... I cannot speak about the days when I was not here. There were incidents, if you look about... I can't speak, actually, but as an observer like you, uh, when I was not here, there are cases where people thought the process was hijacked by outside experts, the DISC case. The DISC case comes out in one way and then the GATT Council reverses the, the findings. Uh, but there were important stakeholders acting as panelists. That was the key. There were less free trade areas, so you didn't have a problem to get guys from any parts of the world here. If you have, uh, I don't know, a case between... Uh, 
X and uh, Y, if X has an agreement, an FTA with Europe or the US, the European, the Americans, ipso facto eliminated. Why? I mean, why do you presume I'm, I have a, a Swiss and a Greek passport? I, I don't think I would ever find in favor of Europe or Switzerland Absolutely. simply because of my passport. I mean, what kind of presumptions are they? If Maybe I'm a member of the, the government. Yeah, but if I'm a member <laughs> of the government, fine, but, but there are people like me who are totally. You see, I don't, I mean, I, I saw Yost's paper, I read it carefully, actually. Uh, first of all, this is not him saying, I mean, if you want to be intellectually honest, this starts 2005. It's a paper by Håkan Nordstrom. Håkan made the first paper. Håkan did not go as far as Yost to say, this guy's right, but he says the incentives are not there for panelists to write. Why? Well, because if you're governmental, you're paid as you know nothing. If you work for a delegation like yours in Israel, you're two or three guys, what can you do for, I mean, you have to follow 50 committees here. When will you find the time to give this 300 hours to a panel and so on and so forth. And I tried to test it econometrically with a very famous, very famous, sorry, very uh, competent econometrician, Luis Johansson. We did the paper in 2017. We said more or less the same thing that we cannot say who drafts what, but the incentives are not there, especially if you're a governmental part, spend too much time. But Panelists have the last word. No matter what the secretariat writes, panelists have the last word. And I think that's one point missing in your paper. You cannot say that, uh, yeah, fine, they might uh, try to bulldoze you or do whatever they want. You have the last word. So what matters is, who do you appoint? You appoint guys there who have their views about WTO law, then, no matter what the secretariat if somebody comes to me and tells me, to give you one report, the last report, Europe Airbus. Oh, I will, annual suspension, even though I have no evidence about uh, damage after 13. What? <laughs> my, no, my job is to come up with an arm. I'm not signing this thing. You want to sign? You put down the names of the secretariat people, not mine. <laughs> uh, honestly. Yeah, yeah. Uh, it depends on who you appoint. That's, I think, very important. And the other thing is, which the, the point they overlook, I think, is wh who is the secretariat here? When I was here, there was big divergence of views between the Legal Affairs Division and the Rules Division, which to some extent, maybe, to some extent, it's not it's probably true. the same. It's not as pugilistic as it was at the time on contingent protection. So depends who you, I mean, it's not that has one view about those things, not at all. Very often they disagree about things. And, uh, these are, I mean, these shortcuts, intellectual shortcuts, which don't help the case. The overall, the overarching point, the secretariat might have a role, yes, but the role is not because they draft, it's because they select the panelists. This is the source of distortion. Yeah, that's the biggest point where you can actually make a difference. In my view, I mean, this is where, this is where the things got pear-shaped. I mean, if you, if you keep in mind that 70% uh, of panelists are non-roster, this means what? Secretariat proposes. And members agree or disagree, very often disagree, 60% of the cases to my statistics, and then they count it's DG nominations. Who will the DG listen to? The Secretariat. Yeah. Yeah. So it's got huge power in selecting panelists. That's the problem. I mean, the problem is they never select people who I would think are the people. I mean, I have a, I do every year with my students in New York, <laughs> I mean, this is just for fun, but it's, I like it. I mean, I like, I, I, there's also a humble intellectual point here. I asked them, said, write down your top uh, 10 lawyers, economists, political scientists in trade. 
So they write, Rodolfo Rivas, number one, number two, LeBron James, and so on. <laughs> and then I say, now see how many of them have acted as panelists. I have a data set, they, and their number is close to zero consistently. Really? And the last big guy was Hudek. And that was 50, 20 years ago. Bill Davy, a couple of times, that's it. Where do you see these people? I mean, they're the people that you read and you know about. Never. And what is the secretary? Should, should this be panelist or upper body member? In my view, both. I mean, the one thing I liked from the European Union was, I don't know if they support it nowadays, was this idea of permanent panelists. In my view, it should be, I wrote a short paper with Bernard, permanent panelists, permanent upper body members who come with their own clerks. They own their decisions. I like very much the European Union Article 255, that's a provision in the TFEU, which says there is a commission of people that we all can accept, and we can find those people. And this commission will, will say no to people you, Israel, or EU, or US might propose. Because you come in with a clown, you invite the circus. You make these guys live by the promise they gave to have the best here, and not every Dick, Dick, Dick Tom and Harry acting as uh, upload body member or panelist, I'm sorry. These are agents with substantial discretion. You must go for the very best, and you must give them excellent support. Let them choose their support, and let them make sure you get your very best guys. Um, so I, that's where, I, sorry to interrupt you, that's where I disagree with my very dear friend Yost. I mean, in my view, the source of distortion is the selection of panelists because they have the last word. It's not the fact that other guys draft. I don't mind. I mean, Ruth Bader Ginsburg or uh, Justice Breyer asks his clerks to write the decision. They don't suck those decisions because Breyer will say yes or no because it's Breyer. And Breyer will select his clerks because he's Breyer. Do the same thing here. There's some control over the content. Of course. Do the same thing here. I think you also wrote a paper about that, uh, about the panelists. The panelists are from Mars and the no, no, no. He wrote it, not me. <laughs> no, no, yeah, yeah, yeah. Just, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Like, I mean about the selection yeah. and everything. Yeah. So focusing on the other aspect that you're yeah. talking yeah. about. Oh, I thought you asked me about the last paper. Yeah, yeah, yeah also about this yeah. one. Well, yeah. Uh, but then also another thing that you touched upon uh, just there about the appellate body members. I think you've also had some concerns about the quality of the... The reports. Of, no, I, I know that you mm. have some concerns. Uh, actually, about this, you've had some concerns, which you've written about them. Regardless of that, you still think that even if you disagree with the way they got, got to the outcome, you pretty much agree with the outcome. Sometimes, the sometimes. Yeah, I mean, I don't know if it's most of it. I agree. I mean, uh, you know, but to me, you know, there are two things here. One is, to me, the value added of an Apple body report is not the right guy won, I don't care about that very much, if you wish. Because to me, they're all, I mean, the Horn, Mudge, and Steger have a fantastic paper, 2010 American Economic Review. It's a paper I think every lawyer should read, even though it's American Economic Review, where they make one simple point. These are incomplete contracts. What is the role of the judge to bring in the missing information, not fill the gaps by looking into things that we have not contracted, by looking into what we have contracted, by asking the question, why did we sign this agreement? by disaggregating some generic terms. That's the role of the judge. So to me, what matters is, how do I end up where I end up? If you tell me in, uh, I give you a very nice example. On a 
very basic point, so we don't have to get into details, we don't have to discuss state-owned enterprises and stuff. <laughs> Non-discrimination, less favorable treatment. Yeah. They say in Korea, various measures against beef. Anytime I see discrepancy, differential treatment equals LFT, go figure. They go back into the Colombia case. They say, no, no, I did not mean exactly that. Uh, under less favorable treatment, I will ask the question, are you paying more money for a reason other than origin? And you say, finally, they got it right. And then comes EC seal products. Every time I see differential treatment, I go, make up your mind. Are we here or are we there? Does policy, policy rationale, do they matter under LFT? Yes or no? You said black, white, black. To give you one, I can give you 50 examples. Like likeness and so on. On basic stuff. That's where, that's why, I mean, I'm, I've, that, that's where these papers come from and the work we did for the American Law Institute. Because a number of people like me, my permanent co-author, Henry Horn, Alan Sykes was in that group, uh, Jim Grossman from Princeton, Bob Steger from Dartmouth now, and Kyle Bagwell from Stanford, we sat down and we said, we have to understand what's going on here. Is case law progressing in lead? There's nothing wrong with saying I got it wrong. Absolutely nothing. The best courts on earth have made mistakes, or sometimes we understand more. I mean, think of vertical restraints in antitrust from 1911 to the 70s. George Stigler's work made, made us rethink a little bit. Of course, but have the decency to say, I got it wrong, or now I know better. With those guys, you never know. It's black, white, and gray. Black, white, and gray. And I can give, not just this one, I can give if you want, we can discuss all sorts of issues. But, but about this that you're saying about case law, this was also some of the concerns raised about the precedent, uh, the presidential value of... I don't agree with the U.S. on this. I'm sorry. Uh, <laughs> I don't agree with the U.S. I think the role of... I mean, I would expect precedent to be, uh, to be followed, actually. Uh, this doesn't mean... But, I but then what you're saying, if you, the examples that you're citing, you're pretty much saying that there's no precedent. Well, which goes actually to the argument. Exactly. exactly. I mean, but the U.S. says... You, the U.S., I think, the point they want to make is... Don't pay too much attention to precedent because when it comes to zeroing, that's the subliminal thing missing, precedent is bad for us. Now, what the U.S. I think is right on this is 17.6 has been disregarded in case law. I mean, they, they, have, they had to from day one, from the 90s. They had to spend some time trying to understand what does permissible interpretations mean. To go out and say there is always one interpretation or my role is to come up with one interpretation. No. Where do these things come from? Why can the International Court of Justice say non-liquid? Why can it say I have no law here and you have to agree on it? Where do these things come from? And is it so clear? If it is so clear, why didn't we put the language from day one? It is normal that we might disagree about. That's one thing. Now, to what extent zeroing is permitted? It's a different issue. But the principle that we might disagree on the understanding of a key term, you and me being both reasonable, I don't think there is any way you can put it into question, quite frankly. Just look at, the, look at the European Court of Justice. Look at the free movement of goods. Look at Dassonville, Keck and Mitterrand, Cassis de Dijon. Three different things. If it was just one interpretation always, we would have repeated the one interpretation. All I'm trying to say is that precedent, I don't believe that consistency is a value in and of itself because you can be consistently wrong. But good precedents, well thought of, yes. Because what is the value of precedent in this way? First of all, you have key intellectual input into the workings. And second, you apply the same law 
irrespective of the parties to the dispute. You show impartiality. That's the beauty of precedent. Now, if I'm in 1975 and I have read George Stigler and I understand that if intra-brand inter -brand competition works, I shouldn't care about intra-brand, yes, I change my precedent on vertical restraints. Because now I understand better how it works. I did not know before. So, and this you assigned maybe to the appellate body. You don't want panels to do this. You want appellate body to be in position to change the mind. But to say no precedent because it doesn't suit me, I'm sorry, quite frankly, I cannot relate to this point. Yeah, I mean, I don't disagree with you on that. Uh, regarding... You're a Stanford kid, that's why. <laughs> uh, yes, and actually I didn't study trade law there at Stanford. I... You should have come to Columbia, you made the big I mistake. I should have, yeah. but at that point... That's, was... It's never too late. I but but at that year. point I was not interested yeah. in trade law. Like, now you like are. Like me, I came... It, like me, in your case, it came also at a later Yeah, stage. but now you are, now you can come to Columbia. <laughs> and I will, I, put, I will put a very good word for you. <laughs> I might. What about... The quality, if you compare the quality of the appellate body members to the quality of judges in other international bodies, I think I, based on what I've discussed with you, uh, what, what is your, your view? Do you think that that was also another of the issues? You know, I, I, I don't want to speak about pers pers individuals and stuff. Let's forget the people, I mean, one by one because it doesn't make sense to do it this way, but just think about their institutional, the background. How yeah, many, I'm just talking about that. Yeah, how many, how many judges you know who have never, for example, practiced law in the US, in one way or the other, that reach not Supreme Court, but federal circuits? Do you know any? I don't. I mean, they pick guys who have worked with the statutes. Well, that was before, no? One way, one way or the other, yeah. either as a lawyer or, 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 or. How do you expect now? I mean, I am top bureaucrat in my country, or I'm ambassador of Switzerland in Norway. Should I become a blood body member? I mean, what is my training that will help me? Absolve a function, function which I'm totally Totally, it was not germane to me, something totally alien. This is what I don't understand. That's why I say, I mean, we should have a committee like 255. Say, look, wait a second. Let's first of all start with the basic stuff. How well versed are they in the legal texts? To me, a number of people fail this test, I'm sorry both at the panel level and at the upper. I don't know why people, honestly, and I'm, this is a little bit disturbing, why people keep focusing on the appellate body. The appellate body, at the end of the day, has to work based on input by the panels. In econometrics, we say garbage in, garbage out. <laughs> well, if you get garbage panel reports, what do, what do you expect those guys to do? They cannot mm -hmm. do miracles. I'm not saying they're great, but see, they cannot do miracles. That's where you start. You start with the panelists. And this, to me, is super important. These are the trier of facts. These are the guys who will say, this is wheat, this is chaff. Apple and Buddy will just look at the legal part. Yeah. Uh, and regarding this, I was also a bit surprised about all the, like all the pieces that were written like everywhere in all major publications, The Economist, uh, New York Times, Financial Times, about uh, the the demise of the appellate body after the demise of the WTO, which I don't see it yeah. that way. 
You see, I'm working on a paper with my dear friend Bernard Marco Huckman, who you know. Hmm. So we try to say the following. So I can, that's sneak preview before the paper is out. We're still working on the paper. Uh, these are two independent things. The overlap is that if at the WTO my legislative function doesn't work, eventually those agreements will migrate elsewhere. Elsewhere could be free trade areas, could be plurilateral initiatives, could be, could be, could be, all sorts of things. Now, this body of law will not be adjudicated in the WTO. So there will be, if you wish, an impact on the WTO as long as the legislative function migrates elsewhere, as long as we cannot provide here an attractive house for multilateral regulation. But of course, I mean, the reason why we have the crisis now, and these are two different things. Uh, this is purely Trump, and this administration, I wouldn't, I wouldn't say even US. I'm, I can never, we have imperfect information about the future, but I'm convinced the next administration will reverse 100 and, 180 degrees by. They, nobody supports those things. Even serious, serious guys in the administration don't support those things. But the other, the bigger crisis, it's a big crisis. In 2001, you were in high school maybe. Or <laughs> I was in law school, in the middle yeah, of law school. I was not far. <laughs> uh, I was also in, uh, just out of high school, just out of high school. <laughs> uh, Barfield wrote a book, not Claude Barfield, American Enterprise Institute. Mm, no. He wrote a book about the WTO speaking about the asymmetry, legislative function doesn't work very very because of consensus and stuff, adjudicatory function, super efficient. And one of my most important mentors, Bob Hudek, wrote a response to that. And he said, oh, you know, I mean, be careful here, the solutions you propose are not very good, blah, blah, blah. And I, I side with Bob. I always side with Bob, I have to say. <laughs> I very rarely found myself disagreeing with Bob. He was a true master and a wonderful man. Uh, another guy I owe a lot to. Um, came David Palmer, all this generation, Gary Huffbauer. But one point that Barfield made is still correct. The legislative function doesn't work. And now he's even more correct 20 years later than before. You cannot have 164 countries with different preferences at different levels of development and say, we will sit down and discuss artificial intelligence, electronic commerce, public health, because now we discuss non-tariff barriers. We don't discuss tariffs anymore, where everybody can be part of a game. Now we discuss social preferences, which are endogenous. And the <laughs> like-minded guys can, unlike-minded guys cannot. And you don't want the old gut reciprocity idea, give mm -hmm. me public health, so I'll give you some... No, these things don't work. So unless the WTO, and that's the papers we've been doing, it's, this is the if you wish the culmination point with Bernard, we've done three, four papers before on this. Unless the WTO finds a way to have a bridge to the hot houses of regulatory innovation, free trade areas, what we advocate is transparency exposed, not ex-ante only. I mean, the moment you have your free trade area, Mexico, Usmaca now, everything you do there, I should know about it in the WTO and see how much of this I can multilateralize. Same thing for plurilaterals, try to incite plurilaterals, which have an even more of an umbilical cord with the WTO. Why? Because dispute settlement is by definition WTO and plurilaterals. 
unless they do these bridges to plurilaterals and free trade areas, it will, the WTO edifice will suffer, and then dispute settlement will suffer as well. Not that it will be obsolete, because we'll always be the house to do past regulation locked in the vault of the WTO, will be adjudicated here. But e-commerce, artificial intelligence, which puts into question the distinction between goods and services, they will migrate elsewhere, and they will be adjudicated elsewhere. And um, yes, but I think that you make me speak too much. <laughs> and that's good. I mean, I, actually, the idea of this podcast is kind of like yeah. to give a taste of yeah. the conversations we have yeah. outside. Of. Yeah. Well, outside it's in restaurants and normally you pay. Here it's for, there is no lunch, there is nothing. I mean. <laughs> But uh, this is what you see as what should happen. Now, the bigger question, I guess, is will it happen? Yeah, well, that's the $64,000 question. I mean, um, this is, quite frankly, it's, it's very difficult to put in... Uh, or, what, or what are the conditions that need to happen for this to materialize? I, in, you know, in our view, in our view, I mean, the, the big powers and big powers is US-China now, number one and two, or number two and number one soon because we're going through to see the strapa shifting yeah. who will be the next hegemon. And the European Union, number three, they have to get together the mid-sized countries, Brazil, India, Mexico, all those guys, and say, look, I mean, there is a value in multilateralism. I mean, economy gets globalized. We talk about global value chains, global. They must have a global house for all the global concerns. Now, yes, we cannot all continue to walk at the same pace, but whatever we do, we should keep our doors open to the rest of the world, some sort of the old idea of open regionalism, APEC, which you should know, being Mexican and so on. <laughs> uh, that, uh, the, I think it is in their own interest, they have to understand, especially the declining hegemons, EU much more declining than US, but to US to some extent as well. But, but I don't think that this is an issue exclusive to trade. I think that there's it's everything. A... I agree. I agree. I, I was going to tell you, I mean, one of the things in uh, this paper we do with Bernard, one big part of the paper is that the WTO has to be used to the idea that from now on you don't discuss across trade delegates. You might have the trade guy as well, but you need to have the AI guy. You need to have the financial industry guy in the room. The guys who will speak about the concerns of their sector, of their expertise. I agree. I mean, it cannot be anything else. The moment GATT success is WTO's curse. When you reduce tariffs to zero, what segments markets? Regulatory barriers. Well, you don't want to discuss regulatory barriers through trade experts. You want to really discuss regulatory barriers predominantly through regulatory experts, mm. regulation experts. Yeah. Well, I, another thing I wanted to hear your thoughts because of the, what you're talking about, like the kind of aversion towards uh, multilateralism or international cooperation. I'm, I'm from Mexico. I live in Switzerland. Nobody's perfect. <laughs> you, should, you should not hold this against yourself. I don't. Yeah. Some hold it against yeah. me, but... I don't. I don't. <laughs> well, I'm from Mexico. I live in Switzerland. My wife is from Kenya. We have daughters who are Kenyan-Mexican. For everybody, I say the better half. For your wife, I say the better three-fourths. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> But this is my point, and I work for Israel. This is my point. I, 
my life, and I think that the life of many people, and you are another case, you are international, goes towards this multilateral cooperation. So it seems to be the reality for a big part of the world, and yet politics there seems, there seems to be a push against it. A very good friend of mine, another guy who I spent a lot of time with, especially recently, Doug Nelson, keeps has. A, I invite him to Columbia Law School not even a month ago. He gave a very nice talk about the rise of populism, but in a historical context, and how populism essentially consistently went against internationalism. And this is what we go through nowadays, unfortunately. I mean, and people keep making the same mistake. They keep saying Trump. I'm not saying that Trump is internationalist, not at all. I mean, you can imagine, I don't have much in common with this administration. I have much in common with previous administrations. Nothing with this. But it's not only Trump. I mean, look at the UK. The who is who of economists sign a letter saying Brexit equals economic marasm for these 25,000 good reasons. And they vote predominantly, and then, and now it seems, in favor of Brexit. Look at what happens in Southern Europe, and so on, and around the world. I mean, we, there is a knowledge gap. That's why I still believe in social policies. There is a knowledge gap, and we have to bridge it. I mean, if it's very difficult. You cannot have islands like New York here, and then Okefenokee, Mississippi, everywhere around the world, because the Okefenokee, Mississippis, they're a multiplier of the New Yorks. So we have to address that. And unless we address that, we are condemned to live in a world of Trumps. But how do you do that? I mean, I'm talking about like on a big political, or maybe you do it in your classes. But how do you do it, like, for example, with your family? What do you tell your kids, like, look, you are a child of an international thing, and you're going to face a lot of a lot of pushback from yeah. many fronts. Like, how do you prepare them for um, It's very difficult to prepare them. I mean, I hope uh, by looking at how we live, they understand how we understand how life should be lived. I mean, there's not much you can say. A little bit, read some books, uh, speak to the, our friends who are people like you and me and stuff like that. I mean, what can you do? You have to expect this. Thing. The question is, what can societies do to address... Well, that's the wider question, populism. And this, quite frankly, it's not so easy because it keeps coming back. So we haven't managed so far. Uh, we haven't managed. It's, there's no easy recipes here. Yeah, it's a very easy to say education, fine. But what does education mean? I mean, I can point to you a number of educated guys who buy this, buy into these things for whatever reasons. And uh, this is why you end up with the numbers you end up. I mean, definitely I would invest more in education, but a very wide idea of education, not... Uh, we have to, I mean, in my view, I mean, you have to have a Gini coefficient for education as well. You yeah. need something, yeah. yeah. Well, uh, another thing I wanted to hear your thoughts, because I know that you also do uh, sports arbitration. A little I, bit, no, not too much. I do, too I, much because but, I but love sports. But yeah. yeah, that's also, I love yeah. sports. Yeah. And, uh, like, what, what, what do you do in this, if you can tell us? Well, I can. I mean, this is, there's nothing secret. I, uh, I work as an, uh, occasionally as an arbitration for the Court of Arbitration of Sports in Lausanne. And I will be hearing cases also in the context of the American Arbitration Association in the near future. Okay. I, 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 it's more, you know, there, what, I like sports. I mean, I was a six-years-old kid when the colonels were in power in Greece when I saw my first Arsenal game, and ever since I'm an Arsenal fan, 
uh, I never changed my allegiance. So even if they're not doing well. Well, even if they're not doing well, <laughs> as a friend of mine says, people get married twice and three times, but they never change their football allegiance. <laughs> 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 Which is about, yeah. I mean, it tells you something about social institutions. So, yeah. <laughs> uh, so I mean. I, I, so I had, a, I had a, an affection for sports anyway from a very young age, and I played myself a lot of basketball and some soccer. Uh, I wouldn't say I was a top 10 player, but I was about there. <laughs> so that's why I ended up studying, because I was useless. But uh, um, what drove me into sports was eventually, I mean, into sports arbitration was, you see, these are, these are not zero-sum markets. It's a very peculiar market. You need your competitor to produce the final good. So let's take our team, Tigres, in Mexico. Uh, well, Tigres, they need Pumas. Without Pumas, there's no football show. So it's not like Coca-Cola would love to eliminate Pepsi and have all the market for Coca. So you need to have some sort of regulated competitive balance. Now, what is the optimal level of regulation here? Very difficult. So this question is too sophisticated for me. So I started looking into regulation in Europe and the US. And lo and behold, Europe loves to say, I am the regulated part of the world. But when it comes to sports regulations in the US, not in Europe, here it's the Wild West. The Wild West is in Europe, not in uh, the Rockies. Yeah. So I started looking into the US uh, regulation. And uh, it's very difficult to say how much precisely the draft system or sharing uh, revenues and stuff uh, has benefited uh, competitive balance. But there is something into the fact that, I mean, when I was a kid, the Celtics used to win two, three years in a row. Then they went for 30 years with nothing. But I think right now, for example, the NBA is the most competitive exactly. it has ever been ever. Exactly. I mean, exactly. That's the point. I mean, you never had a dominant team for more than three, four, five years. Never. And now you look, I mean, if I told you a few years ago that Toronto Raptors would be... They wouldn't have believed that. The world champions. No, you wouldn't. Of course not. But they are. Yeah. And now the Milwaukee Bucks. I mean, who, after, don't know how many years, of course, they have a great guy playing for them. And that explains it, maybe. <laughs> that, that's the yeah. reason? No, I think so. Uh, now they have two great guys. His brother is there yeah, as well. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I think his third brother is playing for the Lakers. The third brother, yeah. yeah, somewhere. No, Dallas, I think, or Lakers. I think the what? Lakers. Maybe uh, Lakers. Some people yes. say that it's uh, like uh, something that the Lakers are doing to eventually get Giannis. <laughs> <laughs> Which I wouldn't mind. They should give him a call, actually. <laughs> anyway, so, uh, I mean, uh, this must have contributed. So that's what. So then I started, uh, there was an initiative here in Europe to do something, I quit a few months ago because it didn't go anywhere, to have something like a salary cap, very soft, financial for It was not actually the same idea. On paper, it never blossomed into anything. But this got me into arbitration. CAS invited me to be there. So I started doing uh, uh, cases for CAS. And quite frankly, it's it's some, you know, some cases are, you might say, very straightforward, but some cases made me think a lot. I mean, that's where you realize incomplete contracting. I mean, it's amazing what happens in the real world compared to what you have in a piece of, in a statute. Yeah. And some of the issues are very, very interesting. I mean, because it's very difficult to see, for example, I'll give you very, and I stop here, then you ask me more. WADA, what is WADA protecting? Is it protecting fairness in the sense 
uh, I want everybody to compete with the same means or health of athletes because you don't have the same instruments for both. There might be some overlap, but there no. might be some, but not total overlap mm. because you can be totally fair by letting everybody can get doped. Or if you care about health, why do you allow sports like uh, um, uh, where was they have the number uh, concussions? Fo American football. Is it? I mean, does it make sense to have it? Or fighting, boxing? Or you have what? If I care about health, why is health an issue when I get doped and it's not when I'm boxing? Well, because American football is the biggest league in the world. Uh, but that's, that's where you... Exactly. I mean, this is the kind of stuff. So when you start doing those cases, you start thinking about... I mean, that's what I always do with any statute. Why do I have this statute? Or how the world would look without the legal discipline? And you start asking these questions. You realize that in sports, I mean, in the US, the economic side of US sports, is very well thought of. But the moment you leave this part and you start thinking about doping, you realize the gaps in the thinking, I mean, of the, the sports legislator. Um, and I, quite frankly, I enjoy my time at CAS very much because they have some very competent people working there in the, in the, um, uh, the CAS clerks. Ah, Joost Paulin could have never written his paper about gas. <laughs> no? So how does he... Ah, I mean, the, it would have been... They have completely hands-free... Totally. Totally hands-free? Totally. I mean, I've done 150 cases there over the last 15 years. Uh, totally. I mean, I have never had a case, and I can tell you with a straight face, where a CAS clerk told me we should do it this way. Never. Never. Now, they might agree, they might disagree. That's irrelevant. But I put my name there. And I am chosen by the parties, not by CAS. So CAS is a little bit, if you will. But then there's no institution there. Like the CAS itself does not have the interest of kind of ensuring yes. like consistency. Yes, they will come. If, if, you, yes. if you write a decision yeah. that goes against whatever yeah. they have, maybe next time they will not appoint you. Maybe, but they did appoint me and I did write a number of decisions where I disagreed with them. They will come and they will say, this is how we dealt with it in the past. And if I'm persuaded, I have no problem saying, I agree with the past, but a couple of, more than a couple of times, where I was not persuaded, I wrote, I know that prior decisions said this, but this is what I think. And I think this way because of A, B, C, D, E, F. And I was, uh, I never had a problem doing that. But this is also kind of what you, going back to what you said about the, the panel stage, if you have a strong panelist who's sure about his knowledge or her knowledge and has the basics of understanding, you will not persuade him to do something that he thinks or she thinks is wrong. But what is wrong with that? No, I completely uh, agree. Yeah. What is wrong with that? I mean, this is what I never understood. I mean, uh, what is wrong with, with having a panelist who will say, uh, I will do, I think that your case law on Article 3 is wrong, and this is what I think about Article 3. Maybe this panel will give you ideas you never thought of and will make the next report even better. What is wrong with that? I mean, what are people afraid of? This is what I don't understand. If you get, I keep hearing from some people in and around Geneva, say, oh, if I have somebody, uh, especially delegations, oh, if we appoint people like you, you come here, you've thought about, you've published them. So what's wrong with that? It means I have an idea about it. You want to have somebody who has no idea. I mean, what do you want? <laughs> I mean, the same people who say secretariat is too influential are the same who say, 
I don't want panelists who are influential. So what do you want then? One of the two must have the knowledge. No? Hmm. Ideally both. Well, uh, final thing, because I know that you also have to go. How do you manage to balance all of this? Your work as an academic, you also here work as a I, I don't work for law firms. I mean, that I, took, I made a conscious choice in my life. I said uh, I don't want to work as an off-counselor whatever for law firms. So, uh, I, you know, let me put it like this. I'm touching wood every day of the, of the week that I, uh, I have the personal life that I have. I mean, it's very important to have a very stable family life. Happy stable, not unhappy stable, because you can have <laughs> unhappy stable. So that's very important. Yeah. So then this allows me, first of that, and then I had the luxury, because it is a luxury, to be in position to do the things I like to do. So I have uh, some people, uh, Henrik, Dam uh, Damian Evan, Andres Sapir, uh, Bernard Huckman, Alan Sykes, that people have been working with for years. Tom Prusa, um, years. So I have this group of 10, 12 sort of permanent, let's say, co-authors, I mean permanent dialogue. Even when we don't write a paper together, we will email twice a week about an issue. And I like thinking about those issues with people who are much better than me and from who I've learned over the years so much. Um, that's, I think, one very important thing is to always work with people who are better than you. I mean, I never, I, thank God, I always had the, these guys accepted me to be co-author and I learned so much from all of them. And then, you know, if you if you say, okay, I'm in a good school, I have enough salary to, not to think too much about working as a consultant, then I do the kind of arbitration that I like to do. And I do a little bit of other, I don't do only sports, but I don't do much. I do enough to live comfortably and not to put into question my research agenda, yeah. which I'm, has been shaping over the years. I have the things I do with Damian, which are clear, we know the next two, three papers we want to do. I have the things I do with Henrik, the things I do with Bernard. And then based on those things, we other people join in. For example, I started working, to give you by the last example. Started working with, uh, on something, something with, Bernard, with uh, Henrik, and uh, Andre became our co-author. And then the, talking to Andre, we decided to work on a, on a book together. And we just finished our book on China after two years of work. It came out from this, uh, from the way we shape our research agenda. And that, again, that's coming out next year? Coming out next year. And also... You'll get a copy for free. Yes, yeah. please. I'll, I'll write yeah. a review. <laughs> <laughs> you have to write a review for the volume three of uh, regulation. Yes, that's also the one on services. On services. That's also coming yeah. out next year? It's coming out sometime in the summer. Uh, it's a little bit longer than I thought. I hate writing. You see, my papers are 20 pages normally. Yeah. But this is a very long book because I want to do detailed manner, the history of, uh, I started working on this with Juan Marchetti, one of the top people I've met when it comes to, who works for the WTO. Yeah, 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 I know him, from Argentina, no? Top services expert. Yeah. He's Italian, actually, but he has an Argentine passport, Marchetti. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The family is from Marche, from Italy. Uh, I'm actually looking forward to this because I would say that services is not my strongest suit. Uh, it is not mine either. I learned so much from Juan, I can never tell. His true name is Juan Alberto, by the way. From Juan Alberto, I can never tell. So we did a paper years ago in which I started 
getting into more and more and more details about. So I want to do a very, you can never say comprehensive, but let's say detailed account of the, of the history of the negotiation, because I wanted to show the importance of political economy here, but also the intersection between political economy and the public order, yeah. because you have financial industries. You have a universal service in telephony and so on and so forth. And then one part is, if you wish, the gadgets is, and then I had to do a third part, which is specific policies. So I picked financial services, transport, migration, and telecoms. Now, each one of them took me close to four or five months to do it. And speaking to another, because you speak financial services. Now, that's a very good example. I had to interview the guys who negotiated the agreement. Then you have to speak to the people who work in the banking sector. And the banking sector in the US is one thing, and Europe is a different thing. Then you speak to the WTO experts. Then you speak to the delegations. And delegations now is both the regulators and the trade community. Well, I'm looking forward to this. I enjoyed the two first volumes and this <laughs> one. So, yeah, I'll get a copy if you have one. I will give you, of course, don't be stupid. Of course, I'll give you a copy. But uh, you have to wait until the summer because okay. it is 1,200 pages, I think, something like this. It's a good uh, summer read. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not so sure about that. But <laughs> it's but, something you can read to your kids to put them to sleep. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, Petro, it's always a pleasure talking to you. Thank you for being so kind and thank you for your interesting points of view. Thank you for inviting me. That was a great conversation, and I can think of a better way to start our second season. If you enjoyed it, please let us know by liking, subscribing, and or reviewing. A small act from you that means the world to me. I have great plans for this season, so stay tuned. If you want to get in touch with me, you can do it by email at rr at rodolforivasproject.com or at rivasrod on Twitter at Rodolfo Rivas Project on Instagram or through our page on LinkedIn. Catch us next time.